Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like plates, hate and capitals. Oh, we should definitely do the, the history of hate. Yep. I think I think the history of hate would I mean it would be disturbing but I think it would be brilliant or we could do the history of worms germs and terms or perms midterms and therms whatever therms are I was leafing through uh, the dictionary trying to find uh, words that rhymed <laughs> however this is to this is to digress monstrously as ever because for today we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam who knew that the history of friendship yes the history of friendship is in fact all about stephen fry and hugh laurie and friendship at first sight it's about diary writing letter writing and the history of emotions it's also about bereavement and falling in love. It's, of course, about Francis Bacon, Cicero and politics, as well as penal laws and the Catholics in 18th century Ireland. And, of course, it's also, confusingly, about the history of cycling clubs. Of course it is. (laughs) Or the history of bling. Did you know this? The history of bling is, in fact, all about costume during the Stuart period. And that was one of our recent homeschooling episodes that we're putting on since the nation is homeschooling in lockdown 3.0. Absolutely. Uh, the, the man presenting this with me, let me just say that if he was a falcon, he would be one owned by none other than Kublai Khan, hunting on the prairies of Central Asia in the Middle Ages. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Well, let's just say uh, that the man not sitting opposite me, uh, because we are social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say that if he were a bird handler, he would only be a royal falconer. Uh, Since we are going to be talking to a falconer uh, today, um, it's the famous historical adventurer himself, my dear friend across town, Dr. Sam Willis. I've just had a revelation, James. Uh, we, yes. we're, we're doing the history of Falcons. My mother's maiden name is Faulkner. <laughs> oh my gosh! And I've just got a revelation. It is a bit of a revelation. I was like, wow. Hmm. I was very, I was particularly, unusually interested in the history of Falcons, and um, well, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. And we're doing this because uh, a couple of summers ago, um, before last summer, so 2019, uh, we were both at the wonderful Chalk Valley History Festival. And I bumped into the brilliant Paul Manning, who is the Faulkner of Lord Bewley uh, at Bewley. Um, so uh, we had I had a wonderful chat with him uh, in the afternoon sunshine. I think I got horribly uh, sunburned, but we're going to come to that in a little bit. But I'm also it's also um, it's also fortuitous. Uh, not only that your mother is a is a Faulkner, but also that I happen to be reading Kestrel for a Knave at the moment as part of my book club, which is actually a choice of your brother-in-law, Sam Willis. Mm. Um, and I've been really enjoying it. Um, those those of you who haven't read it uh, as a as a school classic uh, should should get a copy. It's absolutely brilliant. It's about this sort of fifteen year old boy uh, called Billy Casper who lives uh, in the north of England in a, a sort of mining town. There's very little um, very little going right in his life. He's bullied at school. The teachers don't like him. He struggles with his lessons. His father has left left home because his mother has had an affair. His brother is basically a bully. 
And the one thing that keeps him going throughout all of this is this kestrel that he keeps in a shed uh, at the bottom of his garden. And one of the most tender passages of it is when he's being sort of humiliated in a series of classes at school and then his English teacher tries to get them to sort of start thinking about facts in order to then get them to think about fiction. And he asks uh, the boys to sort of define what a fact is. And he asks for volunteers and some guy sort of talks about a, uh, a story uh, where as a boy he'd been, he'd been out uh, newt hunting with a friend and they'd captured some newts in a pair of Wellington boots and then the friend had dared him to actually tread in the Wellington boots full of newts. So that's a sort of funny story. But then uh, Billy is asked to, is persuaded to start talking about his kestrel, the kestrel he's got. And what if, what comes forth is the most brilliant description of the meaning of this kestrel to this boy. The enthusiasm, you know, despite, you know, his his hardship, it's just the release that he gets from this, the enjoyment, the power, the mastery of training this kestrel from a young, from a young chick. Um, and then he trains it and he feeds it and then he teaches it to sort of fly and then come back to him. And, you know, I think I think one of the interesting things is the way in which falconry and the training of these hunting birds is actually a tradition that goes back centuries absolutely centuries in fact unesco has classed falconry as an example of what they describe as intangible heritage uh a bit rather like thatching um so it's traditionally practiced all over the world by many different cultures and it's that kind of cultural heritage tradition that you need to keep going so there we are there's another sort of little entree into this world of of the falcon and falconry james absolutely fascinating i really enjoyed that i wanted to talk about um falcons in relation to the mongol empire um it's something i became interested in when i uh, did all my traveling in central asia and china i've been lucky enough to go back many many times and to enjoy the the prairies of uh, inner mongolia we have very few sources for knowledge of the Mongol Empire, but what we do have is revealing and interesting, and particularly in relation to um, falconry, particularly uh, hunting with birds as well. Um, they also had an interesting relationship with birds in terms of medicine, uh, which is something that carries right through to traditional Chinese medicine today. Um, and what's interesting is what we know about it survives from... Um, I think it was properly scholarly studies from around about the 13th century. So they were a result of, of actual in-depth research and very, very careful writing. That means that I, I think, you know, farmers and country folk knew a great deal about wild and tame birds, but um, their knowledge is largely lost to us. One of the sources for our knowledge of, of falcons and the Mongols is, of course, Marco Polo, the Venetian merchant. He's an explorer. He's a writer. He travels through Asia along the Silk Road between 1271 and 1295. And then later on in life, he finds himself prisoner of the um, 
uh, Genoese, and he's in prison with a guy called Rusticello da Pisa, who is a professional writer of romances. And it's during a very specific period, 1298 to 1299, so three years or so since he gets back from his travels in Asia, that he sits down with Rusticello and he writes about his experiences. Um, there's no doubt that Rusticello added a bit of a bit of spice and a bit of elaborate words. And one of one of the great joys of reading Polo's book is to actually read it and, and have a little competition with yourself to guess about whether it's true or not. Um, but his descriptions of falconry, I think, uh, do ring with authenticity. Um, so we know, for example, um, that among the Tartars, he describes, the women do the buying and selling and whatever is necessary to provide for the husband and household. For the men all lead the life of gentlemen, troubling themselves about nothing but hunting and hawking and looking after their goshawks and falcons. He then writes about Shangdu. So this is in Inner Mongolia. Um, uh, it's there. It's the, what is it? It's the summer capital of the Yuan dynasty. Um, that's the, the dynasty that rules uh, the Mongol Empire before Kublai Khan. Um, the ruins are still there. You can go and see them. I've been lucky enough to actually go. So he's describing this this life in this capital of, of Shangdu in Inner Mongolia. More than 200 gerfalcons alone without reckoning the other hawks. And he talks about the emperor, how he goes thus afouling with his gerfalcons and other hawks. He's attended by full 10,000 men who are disposed in couples. Every man of them is provided with a whistle and hood so as to be able to call in a hawk and hold it in his hand. There are also a great number of eagles, all broken to catch wolves, foxes, deer and wild goats, and they do catch them in great numbers. But those especially that are trained to wolf catching are very large and powerful birds, and no wolf is able to get away from them. Interestingly, falconry with golden eagles is still fairly common practice in eastern Mongolia and uh, neighbouring areas, particularly amongst the Kazakhs. Um, many other species of eagles are found in that area, but they're not used because the golden eagles are the ones uh, most specialised in hunting uh, large mammals. Anyway, there we are. The point is, is that Marco Polo does put a great deal of emphasis on falconry in his depictions. And it reminds us that um, throughout Eurasia, hunting is not only an obsession of the nobles, um, and a, li a livelihood for the poor as well. But it was also a science. It was very well and carefully thought about and written about. Um, it was also a way of showing power and might and also training for war. The nobles maintained that it helped the peasants by eliminating wolves, bears, uh, crop-eating herbivores and other pests. But of course, it actually deprives the peasants of game and above all of land. So there's an interesting social history, a bit of conflict there with uh, what falconry actually means for the people involved. Um, so there's a fascinating history. I'd like to do some more of, James. Oh, that's splendid, Sam. Uh, as, a, as a professor of Tudor history... Uh, Tudor and Stuart history. Um, the, the Tudors were obsessed with with falconry and hawking uh, as well, uh, not just as uh, out of necessity as a way of putting, you know, meat on the table, um, you know, during winter, uh, but also because it was a, a sort of popular pastime with them, and it was associated with status and with honour and and this idea of hawking and hunting and heraldry and aristocracy sort of seems to sort of f you know feed into each other and there's a beautiful uh, portrait of the falconer or a falconer by Hans Holbein which uh, 
which art historians date to around 1542. Now, one of the reasons that we know so much about um, about falconers and falconry uh, during this period is a book called The Book of Hawking, Hunting and Heraldry, uh, which was printed in 1486 and which is then reprinted in various forms throughout the 16th century and is wildly popular. Um, and we also have evidence of the interest in falcons and hawks and hunting uh, from a collection called the Lyle Letters, which is a collection of 1530s letters. Uh, Lord Lyle is deputy lieutenant in Calais, and it's basically written to by all sorts of leading leading people. There's a letter from George Boleyn, um, yes, connected to, to Anne Boleyn, um, and he writes to Lord Lyle requesting passage for his servant in October 1533, and he writes, This my letter shall be to desire you to be good lord unto this bearer, my servant, William Atkins, ensuring him your favour to pass in Flanders with such small baggage as he shall bring with him, which, when he hath sold it at the most with the same money, buy for me certain hawks, praying your lordship also that as his return from thence that he may have passage with the first that shall come over. There's another letter in September 1533 by a man called William Kingston, again to Lord Lyle, and he describes there the king hawks every day with goshawks, this is King Henry VIII, and with other hawks, that is to say lanners, sparrowhawks and merlins, both afore noon and after, if the weather serves. Now, one of the really fascinating things about these birds is that they different types of birds delineate different levels of social standing. In other words, the higher you are up in society, the better, the more magnificent bird you have. And this is described in the book that I was talking about earlier on. This is described in the book of Hawking, Hunting and Blazing of Arms. And at the top, you of course have the emperor. And an emperor can have a golden eagle, a vulture and a merlin. The king can have a gyre falcon, both male and female. A prince can have a female peregrine. A duke can have a rock falcon, which apparently is a subspecies of the peregrine. An earl can have a peregrine falcon, a baron, a male peregrine. The knight can have a sacker or saker. A squire can have a lanner falcon. A lady can have a female merlin, a yeoman, a goshawk or hobby. A priest, a female sparrowhawk. Holy water clerk can have a male sparrowhawk. And knaves, servants and children can have an old world kestrel, which brings us back to kestrel for a knave. So there we are, Sam. There's a little history of Tudor falconry. So now we're going to cut to an interview with the brilliant Paul Manning, who is the falconer uh, of Lord Bewley. And the interesting thing here is that Bewley was has a really ancient association with the art of falconry and it's something that can be dated back to the 11th century and Paul was appointed in 2018 and he was the first 
Faulkner, endorsed by the Montague family for over 300 years. And if you go to Bewley, probably when lockdown is is over, if if he's still there, you can see him involved in their summer living history events. And what he does is he does these displays and he shares with you his extensive knowledge of the history care and training of these magnificent birds and as I said earlier I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of summers ago at the wonderful Chalk Valley History Festival so hope you enjoy this interview. Hello everyone this is James Daybell here and I am taking a further break out of the wonderful Chalk Valley History Festival and I have just run across one of the most interesting people that I've met at the festival. I'm talking to Paul Manning here, who for the last week has been running the falconry displays at the festival. So Paul, great to meet you. Yes, and to and meet you. Yeah. So tell me what you've been up to this week. Um, well, we've been doing the, the school, pro part of the school programme, um, doing the history of falconry, um, and then I've been flying a few birds. Uh, but really just trying to um, bring alive that rich, um, thousand year history of falconry in this country um, and explaining to the children how it ties together the whole site um, and and touches on just about every single period certainly up to the the reign of James II. Brilliant and you are actually a practicing falconer. I am I'm Lord Mont Montague's falconer on the Beaulieu estate and I'm a practicing falconer doing exactly what was done uh, there and here uh, for 600 years. Goodness me so in a way then the kind of thing that you're doing it hasn't changed. No, um, falconry is truly living history. Yep. Um, so what I practice is um, identical to what was happening here. Um, we, we're just about to uh, watch uh, the hundred uh, hundred years war. Yes. Um, the, I'm doing exactly what would have been done by people involved in that. Exactly what would have been done. Um, in the first crusades the second crusades nothing has changed of any significance some of the equipment some of the materials um, but um, no the practice is exactly the same and not just here but all around the world for just about four thousand years goodness me so when historic because historians are always wanting to explain change and how things have developed but this is actually a practice that has not changed across the ages absolutely and, and one, one of the um, one of the big differences is that um, falconry probably reached its zenith um, around Tudor England. Yes. Uh, we are not on the same page as our forefathers. So far, far from actually um, being more advanced or doing anything different, um, we're still really not as good a practitioners as they were then. Why, why, were, why is that? Well, these were dynasties of falconers okay. uh, working with unlimited number of birds for some of the most powerful people on the planet. Yep. Um, it was done to death. The, the birds that we use are exactly the same species. Right. Uh, the training is exactly the same. Uh, obviously, the hunting is exactly the yes. same. Um, so the variables have not changed, just the resources, the time, the expertise, right. um, because unfortunately, um, at the end of the 18th century, falconry kind of disappeared with the advent of the shotgun. Right. Um, the Land Enclosures Acts, which took public land into private ownership and much yep. of it was fenced. Yep. Then people start conserving game. And then falconry goes from um, uh, birds of prey, the first birds, the uh, first animals in this country that have protection, um, to steal a peregrine falcon chick from a nest in that period Gosh. will cost you your life. Right. By the end of the 18th century, you're paid a penny or tuppence for every one you shoot. So falconry doesn't 
slowly so they're dry almost out. vermin. After, yeah, absolutely. After, yes. And within yep. about 50 years, it literally falls off a cliff. Um, and so as modern day falconers, we're having to relearn what was learned over thousands of years. So a historian who wanted to write about falconry would have to speak to you. Absolutely. They'd learn more speaking to you than reading about it. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and because falconry is counterintuitive, yep. uh, you have to learn it from somebody. If you learn a little bit and then make an assumption about the next step, you will always go wrong. And yep. we were talking earlier about um, the example of that is in um, literature down through the ages. Yes. Um, you can tell the falconers that are referencing falconry, like yep. um, uh, William Shakespeare, yes. who was undoubtedly a falconer. Yes. And then you get the historians like um, Conan Doyle yep. that mention falconry because it's, it's part of that historical tapestry, but get it completely and utterly wrong. Right. So that's an intelligent man that has learnt a bit about it, yeah, yeah, but has but then made the next assumption, and to yep. any falconer you can tell. So, yeah, falconry is not something that you can, um, you can just uh, um, learn a small amount and then yep. pass yourself off as an expert. If you want to know about falconry and its social position in yep. society, you have to speak to a falconer. Do you know, I'm, this is very similar to some of to what we were talking about earlier on when I, I was saying that I'm writing this book on gloves. And actually working with people who are leather specialists, which is another practice that just hasn't changed across the centuries. I'm learning things from them, from them that I just wouldn't get from, Absolutely. from, from other things. So tell me more about, about your art as a falconer, how you, how you, how you train, what you do, and, and, then, and also what you've been doing here, how you've been yeah. demonstrating that. Yeah, um, well, the, the dictionary definition of falconry is the taking of wild quarry, in its yep. natural state and habitat by means of trained raptors. And, and so hunting with birds of prey is, is falconry. And um, bird, falconry was used as a, a training ground for ladies and gentlemen down through the ages because, and it, from the middle of the 12th century, it's part of a lord, uh, sorry, a, a lady or, or lord's um, education. So yes. it's part of their schooling. So yep. it was in their DNA. Every single person that is being studied here that helped shape our nation's history in the 600 years after the First Crusade were falconers. Right. They learnt it as children, it's the most right. popular sport in Britain. Um, birds of prey stay wild for their entire lives. You can't train a bird of prey and you can't tame a bird of prey. Uh, in the wild, a peregrine falcon will only encounter another creature on three occasions in her life. One if she's going to kill it, yep. another if it's going to kill her, yep. and the only other time she comes together is to breed. Okay. And in birds of prey, the female's larger than the male. If she doesn't fancy him, she'll kill him and eat him. Right. So they have no concept of living in a society like so, we do. So they don't look after their young nope. or anything? Okay. No, very functional. Right. So they have no concept of living in society. They don't seek the love, protection or affection of any other creature. They shun all other creatures. They have no instincts to obey a leader. So okay. there's nothing you can do to impose your will on a bird of prey. Right. Uh, all you can do is gain their trust over long, long, slow periods of gaining their trust in a semi-darkened room with no disturbance, enough for them to feed from you. And then over time, they will trust you enough to tolerate you while they do what they do naturally. So what age do you, what age do you start they training them? They have to be adults. They have to be adults. Which means um, they have to have been with their parents. Um, uh, sorry, they have to have been raised to adulthood by their parents. Right. And then been driven out into the wild to survive on their own. Any time after that, we work with them. Okay. And then we go through this very slow period of gaining their trust um, to the extent where they will just use you as, a, as an aid to their survival strategy. But they will never, they don't 
like you, they don't want you to like them, they don't want to please you, they have no desire to be around you at all. But they trust you? They completely and utterly, right. but that's all. Right. The crucial thing is, therefore, when you hunt with a bird of prey, they never hunt with you. Okay. They use you to get a positive outcome. Okay. Once they've caught their food, um, they want nothing more to do with you. Okay. They would never, ever bring their food back to you, okay. and you can't take off of them what they've caught, because okay. if you robbed them of their kill, they'd never fly with you again. Okay. Okay. So, this is really important. <laughs> when they catch their food, you have to get to them. You have to make into them very low and slow, normally on your hands and knees, so you don't, don't frighten them off. You can then offer them food in your gloved fist, um, and, and uh, you can quickly cover up what they've caught, take in, it away. So it's in exchange, in exchange for that, okay. But the point is, even a prince has to crawl on his hands and knees to a falcon. It was a way of teaching humility, fortitude, Brilliant. and fine judgment. Brilliant. So your power, uh, a perfect example, if you're Henry VIII and you tell a joke, everyone laughs. Yes. Are you funny? Yep. You're never going to know. This is, Falconry was the only pure relationship he ever had because it was based on his merits. Yes. You can't get anyone to do it for you. You can't buy a result by buying the best bird. If a bird is going to fly and hunt with you, you have to do it all yourself and you have to dedicate yourself to the bird. It's selfless. For the man born to command, or woman for that matter, it is that lesson in humility, fortitude and fine judgment. So it was used very much to bring you down stop you from thinking you're more important than you are and it still works today in exactly the same way you have to work at the relationship every single day you have to serve the bird you have to make sure they never have any bad experiences yep. um, so everything that made it the most um, popular sport in Britain for 600 years is the same reason we do Goodness it today me. and it hasn't changed <clears throat> and how long does it take to train yeah I mean probably from first taking a bird from their parents or the first time you ever worked with them to the day when you can stand in a middle of a field with no um, distractions at all and they will fly to you around six or seven weeks six but remember weeks, that average is out at about three hours a day every single day for six or seven weeks and then you have to keep working at that relationship every single day so it's not like a dog that once you've gained their trust it stays that way forever so if, weekends and well they're just if you didn't work with them for if I didn't work with my birds for two weeks, yep. it would take two weeks to after that to get back Goodness where I was. If it was, a, if it was two months, you'd have to start from the beginning again. Right. They go back to wild every day that you don't work with them. Goodness me, that's a long... I, I had no idea Absolutely. I have Absolutely. I have a new Gia Falcon that uh, I got um, two years ago. He has never gone one single day when he didn't feed on my fist. So if really? you think of what you've really? done in the last two years, that's the degree Goodness of... Goodness yeah. me. Um, so, and again, that's a great... And it shows that it's all, it shows the dedication of a falconer as well, Absolutely. It's and how that, re that your life is structured around that relationship with with the bird. So, what have you been doing here? Uh, well, I, I present. Um, we had a display of birds for for the children groups to come around and just talk and ask questions, which was lovely. And then once a day, we'd go to the top of the field. I would do a, a presentation about the history of falconry, this 4,500 yep. year history, um, uh, making sure that it it touches on all those periods that the children are learning at school. Yep. And then I would oh, just good. fly, I'd, I'd do a little oh, bit of got, early training. Birds here. Yep, and I'd do a little bit of early training with one of the birds to show them that relationship I just yes. spoke to you about. And then I fly two different body shapes, a hawk, 
which is an A to B hunter yep. uh, that takes mainly ground quarry. And then we were flying a Falcon here. And the three days, the, the weather conditions were different on all three days. And the last day was fantastic. We had Windy and she was, she, he flew goose. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and what's the importance of falconry on the estate for you? Because it's, it's great to hear that kind of ancient practice still continued today. Yeah. So, so why? Well, really, the, the Beaulieu estate where I am was founded by King John in 1204. King John was one of the great falconers in history. Um, and then um, because uh, Beaulieu Abbey was, um, the abbot there was um, a royal envoy, uh, a king's envoy, uh, he was sent to the great courts all around the world, some of the great falconers. And, they, and the, the great falconers in history visited Beaulieu and hunted there. And then with the dissolution of the monasteries, which is obviously ended by one of the other great falconers in history, Henry VIII. Henry VIII yes. um, it is then sold to his chancellor, which is um, Risley. Yes. Risley um, was, um, the Risley family were falcons herald to Edward IV, and the Risleys are direct ancestors of Lord Montague. So falconry then is at the heart of, of Beaulieu straight yes. away. Yes. The Risley coat of arms is, two, uh, is four dear falcons, the highest yes. ranking falcons. And so falconry, in the same way that I was talking about on the site here, falconry ties together the whole history of Beaulieu. And yep. I am just the latest in a line of falconers that will have been associated with the site. And for me, with my great love of uh, history, my love of falconry, it's the best place I could possibly be um, with finding That's out more. superb. I mean, it, it's, it really is keeping those ancient practices at the heart of the, of the heritage of Absolutely. the Absolutely. But the, the, crucial, the, the crucial thing, and we were talking about this, the crucial thing for me is not keeping a historical um, practice alive in that reenactment. Yes. It is continuing that ongoing thread. Yes. So it is still yes. living history. I am not a museum piece at no, Muley. No. I am a functioning 21st century falconer that just happens to do exactly yes. what my forebears did, yeah. which is very different. And um, it's a subtle difference, yes. but it's really important because the, the things, the things that falconry was valued for then still have resonance today. In fact, more so, you could argue. Yes. Um, so, yeah, whilst it, whilst it could look like I am keeping alive this ancient tradition, um, sorry, I'm, I'm presenting an ancient tradition, I am just another exponent, and I hope yep. in 100 years' time there'll be yep. a falconer there doing exactly the same thing. Brilliant. And, and is there a practical use for falcons on the estate? Or? No, not no. really. There so, never was, really. No. Um, okay. the, there the is, family don't... Oh, oh, they do. I, uh, no, we, we do. We, we, I teach the family. We, we take hunting parties right. out with the right. family. Um, so they, they, they're not practicing falconers, but they are incredibly supportive and interested in falconry, and they do take part, and they understand the importance on yes. a number of levels. So I'm really lucky to have Lord Montague's patronage in that respect. Yes. Yes. Um, and obviously that deep link with his family history is very important as well great uh, and, and just one one thing i'm kind of rambling on now but no no this but is we, terrific we've talked, stuff we've talked a lot about this amazing tradition keeping the tradition alive in the uk but of course falconry has been a world sport for 4500 years the birds have always been imported and exported all around the world for a thousand years all the species we use from africa from um, from the arctic tundra are the same species yes. that were flown here a thousand years and the falconers were transported around the world. So Eleanor of Aquitaine's head falconer is um, Nicosius from Syria. You know, we've, we've got Arab falconers coming into this right. country. Right. So 
although it's something that I'm hugely proud of as an Englishman, yes. it is a world tradition. If I got into a TARDIS and got pinged to Kazakhstan 600 years ago, I'd have nothing in common with anyone. If I find a falconer, we have a direct Even link because we do link. exactly the same thing the same way. And that's wonderful. Yes. Mary Queen of Scots, I can see what she saw. I'll never feel what she felt. But when I'm training a bird, I know exactly how she yes. felt because we're doing exactly the same thing. And again, that's a lovely link with history. That is, that's terrific. Yeah. So if people wanted to see you in action, could they come to the house and...? Well, it's difficult in that I, um, I, I come to this wonderful Chalk Valley, uh, Chalk Valley History, History Festival. Festival every so you're year. here every year? I'm, I'm, I'm here, well, as long as I'm invited, I'll yes. come because I think it's fantastic. Yes. Uh, I don't do a lot of public display work. Okay. Uh, I have a falconry school and exhibition at Bewley, which people can come and look at. And, um, and I do, through the summer weeks, um, when we have living history, I do present. Right. Uh, but I'm not there on a daily basis okay. because I'm a practicing falconer. Okay. I have the best of both worlds because I get to share my passion for short periods yes. and then go and, become, and then go back to being be a falconer. A falconer. Yeah. Well, Paul, it's been absolutely wonderful. James, it's been a real pleasure. You. I'm glad we met. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So there, that was absolutely brilliant, Sam. Paul Manning is an absolute character. And what was fascinating is the way in which he talks about the, the sort of longevity of the art of the falconer, which can be traced back to the Crusades. Absolutely terrific. Did you enjoy that? Hugely, hugely. Guys, I hope you liked our special episode on falcons. Do please follow me on social media. I'm on at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and we are on Facebook. So check us out there and follow us or like us. Um, you can also find out everything that we have been doing at our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We're doing a series on homeschooling for historians uh, since we are in lockdown and everyone is at home and trying to learn about the past. That's it, guys. Cheerio. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.